are so, so thankful for who you are, for your grace and your mercy, your power to heal and to restore, your power over the grave, your power over sin. Jesus, we are here today and, and we proclaim you. We thank you. We praise you, Lord. We are, we are broken. We are weak. We are insufficient in ourselves. And yet you, Lord, have, have come down to us. You have shown us such, such grace, Lord. You have lifted us up. You have forgiven our sins. You have made us new. And so we pray today, Lord, that we would see you and hear you and know you in your word as we spend this time together. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm so thankful for Sarah and for Kenna leading us this morning with their, with their team. Uh, what a gift it is to, to have them and, and to be, uh, for them to be sharing their gifts with us. Um, we're starting a new sermon series this week, uh, kind of on and off, depending on who the preacher is. Guest preachers, we won't make them preach on Ecclesiastes, but staff, they're going to be doing this. And if you don't know much about this book, let me give you a little taste uh, from chapter one. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And if you think, okay, but that must just be like one verse. The whole book can't be like that. It kind of is. That is more or less the, the tenor of the book. And it's a bit of a swing from where we've been, isn't it? Like we spent the last, uh, well, we spent, what, eight months in the book of Acts? This glorious narrative of the explosion of the early church, the preaching of the good news. And, and then we spent the last two months in, the, in spiritual gifts and how the Holy Spirit has empowered us to make him known to serve the church. And then one week later, everything's meaningless. You got a gift, it's meaningless. You found a purpose, it's meaningless. <laughs> I mean, we'll ease up, right? I was, I was sharing this with, uh, with a few bridge long-timers, we'll call them, to be age-sensitive. And, uh, and they, were, they were a little surprised about this. One looked at me with a very kind of uh, concerned, confused look on his face. And he, he asked me, and this is a genuine question, he said, don't we want people to be coming to church in the summer? <laughs> so, why, so why this book and why now? Uh, it is, uh, well, it's, it's summer, and so you, uh, you, you get a lot of like one-off sermons. And this, this uh, book lacks a lot of uh, kind of logical progression and structure, so it's a bit easier to do these one-offs. People are coming and going in the summer. They can catch one. They don't need to have been here for the, the previous few. I also think it's important to diversify our diet as a church. So, um, you know, if, if all you ever eat is dairy or vegetables or whatever, you're going to be nutritiously deficient. And so we spent a lot of time in some very triumphant New Testament texts, but that's not all that we have in the scriptures. You have this whole genre known as wisdom literature, which is really like down-to-earth, practical, it's, it's rugged stuff, hence the, the title of our, of our series here. It's, it gets to the core of the world as we find it, in all of its brokenness, and how we are to live well in the midst of that. And so we need to be able to speak this language as a church. We need to be able to take in this kind of nutrition as, as well. And then actually, probably most of all, the reason I'm, I'm actually excited about doing this book is because it actually speaks very much into the kinds of worldviews we find, we encounter today in our culture. One, uh, one scholar says that Ecclesiastes is the most contemporary book in the Bible, that it is a satiric attack on an acquisitive, hedonistic, and materialistic society. It exposes the mad quest to find satisfaction in knowledge, wealth, pleasure, work, fame, and sex. 
This book exposes that mad quest to find satisfaction in all of those things. We're going to see that in Ecclesiastes 2 especially. Now before we get into that, just a couple of notes about the book as a whole. Um, nobody agrees on who wrote the book. The, uh, the historic kind of position was that it was Solomon, and there's some indications in the text that it is. A lot of scholars, including conservative ones, doubt that now. Uh, so some think that it was written in the 10th century BC, some think more like 3rd century. But it doesn't, in the end, really make a big difference in the book of Ecclesiastes, how we, how we understand it or, or apply it, one way or the other. Because the key is, is to discern the wisdom that is being spoken here and then trace it through to, to Christ. The author himself kind of identifies himself as the teacher. In Hebrew, the word is kohelet. And uh, when it's translated into Greek, as the Hebrew scriptures get translated into Greek, the word is Ecclesiastes, hence the title of the book. So the, the teacher identifies himself as one who has experienced a whole range of, uh, of, of, of kind of aspects of life where he has tried to find meaning. That's what Ecclesiastes 2 is about. He goes, look, I have sought for meaning in all of these different areas. And he had, he had firsthand access to these unlimited access in some cases. And this is what he found. So we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 2, starting in verse 1. Uh, we'll just go to verse 11 to start with. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And then what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. So there's this word that uh, the teacher uses over and over again, the word meaningless. He says, everything I, I saw, everything I experienced was meaningless. And, uh, and the word there really means something like, uh, like breath or breeze or a vapor. It's something that's fleeting. It's, it's here and then it's gone. It's a mirage. It's like something that looks like it has substance and you reach out your hand to touch it and it, and it vanishes. He says that's what these things were like. He says, he says that it was all a chasing after the wind. And the Hebrew word there has to do with uh, shepherding. It's like you imagine 
uh, a Hebrew shepherd with, a, with a, a staff with a crook on it, trying to gather all the wind into one place. He said that's what it was like to find meaning in these things. He says that nothing was gained. There was no profit. There was no ultimate benefit to all of this stuff. And he tracks through all of these pursuits that actually a lot of us in 21st century, the 21st century modern world can identify with. He says this was true of laughter. Laughter is great. I love laughing. I love making people laugh, though that rarely happens, as you, as you all know, um, as my wife especially knows. And uh, it's great. All, most of our best memories come back to laughter. But when that becomes the, the meaning and the purpose of life, it falls short. I thought about Chris Farley. Chris Farley was, uh, well, Adam Sandler called him the funniest guy in the world. And if you watched skits from Saturday, Saturday Night Live in the early 90s, which I wasn't allowed to when I was that, the age in that time, but later on I did, um, he, was, he was hilarious. My favorite was when he, was, uh, he played Matt Foley, the, uh, the motivational speaker, who lives in a van down by the river. And he's hired by a father to come and speak to these two teenagers. And he walks in and he tells them that they're going to amount to diddly squat. And that just like him, they're going to live in a van down by the river. And he smashes into the coffee, falls and smashes into the coffee table. The guy was hilarious. He was also deeply insecure. He said that the most terrifying sound in the world was the sound of silence after the roar of laughter had died down. So he would do something really funny, everybody's laughing, but what next? What comes after that terrified him? He was afraid of, of losing weight because he thought that would make him less funny and it would remove one of his main shticks in, in comedy. In the end, he was uh, 33 years old and he was found dead of a cocaine and morphine overdose uh, hours after begging a prostitute not to leave him alone. The funniest man in the world, absolutely miserable, totally insecure, all that laughter, a chasing after the wind. The teacher says it's true of, of alcohol, that a life devoted to, to wine and to the folly that comes from that is, is ultimately empty. You know, you see these beer commercials and they glorify alcohol. Look at all these people having this wonderful time. The beer commercials don't usually include the clip of the college girl hugging the toilet at 3 a.m. or the alcoholic who's lost his job. Anyone whose life has been touched by alcoholism can tell you that whatever release, whatever escape it provides is ultimately fleeting. It is, it is short. It, it falls short. It is, is, is empty. That this kind of pursuit, this self-destructive pursuit for another drink is just so, so fleeting. The teacher says that it's true of, of success, he says he undertook great projects, built houses, planted vineyards, made gardens and parks, reservoirs, and so on. He undertook these projects, and he was tremendously successful in them. If you think about uh, King Solomon, if the teacher is King Solomon, Solomon left a mark in the world. He, he built the temple in Jerusalem. I mean, talk about leaving a legacy, right? Like tremendously successful in all that he did. You know, I, I think about uh, Caroline Wozniacki. She was, she was a professional women's tennis player. Uh, at age 20 in 2010, uh, 2010, she became the number one ranked women's player in the world. She's 20 years old, and, and she had reached the pinnacle of, his, of her career. She was making millions, winning tournaments, on magazine covers one of the best and most recognizable women athletes in the world. 
And this is what she told ESPN shortly after gaining that number one status. She had this epiphany. She said, you reach the highest pinnacle and then you realize that everything is the same. It's depressing. Life really just goes on. Sounding a bit like the teacher in Ecclesiastes, right? Everything she'd been working for, everything her life was aimed at, achieving the success, being on the top of the world in her field. In the end, it was just meaningless. The teacher says this is true of riches and wealth that he had bought male and female slaves, had other slaves own more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before him and had amassed silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Again, if this is Solomon, Solomon had so much wealth. The Bible goes to great lengths to show the extent of Solomon's wealth. Here, uh, I thought about Lindsay Snyder. She is the, uh, the granddaughter of the founder of In-N-Out Burger. And if you don't know In-N-Out Burger, I am so sorry for your loss. <laughs> because it is the greatest fast food restaurant in the world. I'm fairly confident. Of all the, the meaningless, chasing after the wind types of activities you could engage in, I would suggest driving to the nearest In-N-Out Burger location, which is six hours away in Kaiser, Oregon. Uh, that's all I'm going to say. Well, I'll say one more thing. If you go... Ask for the three-by-three three animal style. It's not on the menu. It's part of the secret insider menu that only people like me know about, but they'll know what you mean by it. So anyways, Lindsay Snyder became the president of In-N-Out Burger at age 28. She was the youngest female billionaire in the United States. Had wealth and possessions that none of us could even dream of. But by the time she was 32 years old, she had been divorced three times and her life had hit an absolute rock bottom low. She had been searching to fill some kind of void in her life with riches, with success, with romantic love, and it had all fallen short. Now, this is a little bit too early in the sermon to tell you this part, but uh, I, I listened to her testimony. She ultimately came to find that meaning that she was looking for in Christ. And you see that reflected in the Bible verses that are printed under the cups of the In-N-Out Burger uh, drink cups and the fry boxes and burger containers. Like I said, greatest fast food restaurant in the world. Moving on. Um, ultimately meaningless, this, this wealth and, and these riches. Two more areas uh, the, the teacher talks about. He, he says that he, uh, he had male and female singers. You just imagine him walking through his expansive property and being, being treated with surround sound with some of the most beautiful and talented musicians that he could find. And music does this, right? We lose ourselves in music. It can be glorious. One of the, um, I think subjectively, of course, one of the bands that plays some of the most beautiful music in the world is a little-known band called Explosions in the Sky. Uh, and I've been to a couple of their concerts, and it's, it's glorious. You know, you just you go out on such a high. But then the next day, you know, still got to change the dirty diapers and wash the dishes, and there's still conflicts to resolve. It's, it's fleeting. It's, 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 it's a vapor in the end. And then he says the same thing is true of sex. He says that he had a harem. And, uh, and of course, there's something very culturally and historically conditioned about this, but you can understand for how a man in the ancient world, this would have been the delight of a man's heart. And in some ways today, internet pornography kind of mimics that, where you have this wide variety of, of women or men who are kind of on offer on your computer screen, your phone screen, to kind of satisfy any sexual desire you have. 
But as most people who have dealt with pornography will tell you, whatever pleasure, whatever satisfaction it gives is so, it is so fleeting, it is so vaporous, it is so meaningless, it leaves you worse off afterwards than you were before. So the teacher says, look, I, I had all of these things. I had access to them like nobody else. He says he, he denied himself nothing his eyes desired. He refused his heart no pleasure. He, he lived just this hedonistic kind of life for fleshly satisfaction. And, and this was his conclusion again. He said everything, all of this stuff was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. And he's not finished there. He keeps going in case you think, man, that covers a lot of ground. He tried to find meaning in other places too. Verse 12, he says, Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So here, here the teacher looks for, for meaning, for purpose, and in wisdom. And again, you think about King Solomon. Early on in his reign, 2 Chronicles tells us that God appeared to him in a dream. And he asked Solomon, what do you want me to do for you? And Solomon did not ask for a thousand more wishes, which is what Solomon thought that he should do. Instead, he said, I, I want wisdom. He said, give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people for who is able to govern this great people of yours. And God told him, because you didn't ask for wealth and for honor and for success, I'm going to give you all of those things as well as the wisdom you have asked for. And, and as Solomon went on in his years, people, people traveled from all over the world to come and glean his wisdom, to experience his wisdom firsthand. So he knew this. He'd accumulated this. And he says right here that it is better to be wise than to, to be foolish because, because the wise can see it's, it's like being wise gives you eyesight. It's, it's like having a flashlight in a dark room. You're able to shine the light. You're able to see the traps and the snares that might catch other people up, right? A, a wise person sees that, for example, being flirtatious and letting your eyes wander is ultimately going to lead to destruction in your, in your marriage and the marriage of others, and so they stay away from it. But the fool rushes headlong into it. So being wise is, is better. It's going to preserve your, your life. It's, it's, it's going to make your life better. But he says, ultimately, wisdom fits this category of, meaningless for, of meaninglessness for a couple of reasons. One, it goes, it goes back to chapter one, where uh, he, the, the teacher actually says, yeah, I, I sought for, for meaning and wisdom. I became so wise. But he says in verse 18, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge the more grief. You know, if you think about wisdom as a flashlight shining in a dark room, what, what, what it ends up doing is it exposes all the, all the dangers. I mean, what if, what if the room is full of, 
of rabid creatures and dangerous weapons. Now having the flashlight shows you what's there, whereas if you're just in the dark stumbling over things, you have no idea that some four-eyed beast is, is scratching and clawing at you, right? Being wise opens your eyes to the brokenness that exists. Think about the Matrix, right? Neo living in this, uh, blissfully living in this kind of computer simulated world is given a choice. He could take the blue pill, which allows him to continue living ignorantly in this, in this simulation, in the matrix, or he could take the red pill, which is going to open his eyes to the reality of the world that he's actually living in. That's a metaphor for wisdom right there. And he takes the red pill, which is the right choice, but it does result in hours and hours of grief and sorrow and conflict, and then 20 years later, even more hours that nobody was asking for filled with conflict <laughs> and grief and sorrow. <laughs> so wisdom, wisdom increases your, your knowledge. It increases your view of the world, but that can, bring, that can bring grief. And the second reason he says wisdom is ultimately meaningless is that in the end, the wise and the fools share the same fate. That in his view, they all end up going to the grave. Albert Einstein Leonardo da Vinci, I always want to say DiCaprio, but he's not there yet. Leonardo da Vinci, they, they share the same fate as you and I and Joe Blow down the street. You might remember a few of the really smart, educated people who have existed through the centuries, but there are so many people who have contributed so much to our human knowledge and technological advancement that you have no idea who they are. You don't remember their names. They've come and they've gone and their legacy is, is forgotten. So he says, look, in the end, the wise and the fool, you pursue these things, but it, it, it's all, you all end up in the grave. You share the same Faith, so wisdom as well, living, living a life just for the accumulation of degrees and certifications and building a huge library, if that's your meaning and purpose, it's going to fall really, really short. And he's still not done. He says, one more area that I sought for meaning in. Verse 17, he says, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge and skill. And then they have to leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. You see why Ecclesiastes is called the most contemporary book in the Bible, right? Because it just names all of, these, all of these pursuits. Here it's work. How many people in our world today make their whole kind of identity and meaning and purpose centered around their work? It's what we do, right? We ask people when we meet them, what do you do for work? It's one of the first questions because we invest so much in this in terms of what we, what we do as, as a job. And we do this as Christians too sometimes where we focus so much on our work, whether we're pastors or missionaries or volunteers, that we end up sacrificing other stuff in our lives. 
I was doing a wedding recently for, uh, for a couple, and the guy, his parents had been missionaries in a foreign country, and uh, they, they had sent all their kids to a boarding school in, uh, in, a, in another country, so they're kind of a, a distance away. And, uh, and they didn't see their parents for 10 months a year as they were growing up. And then the two months of the year that they saw the parents, the parents were advised by the mission board not to show too much affection to the kids because it would make the inevitable departure in the fall more difficult. Man, that guy is an older guy. He has been, he has been dealing with the scars from that his entire life. So we do this, we, we put so much, we, we put so much energy and time into this because it, it builds our wealth, it builds our status, our legacy, our identity, and so on. And, and the teacher says, look, in the end, this too is meaningless. And the example he gives, the reason he gives is because you put all this work into it, into your work, into, into your labor, and then you pass it on to somebody and they squander it. There's a Chinese saying along, the, along these lines. It goes, wealth does not survive three generations. And, and it's true. Uh, there's, a, there's a study that's, that's been shown that uh, the 12%, only 12% of family businesses remain viable in the third generation after the founder. And I think it's something like 3% that last into the fourth generation. There's so many examples of family businesses that the first generation started, the second generation built and expanded, and the third generation ruins. Because grandchildren are the worst, am I right? <laughs> no! Grandparents all moan and groan. Not at all. But this is kind of the curse of sin. Deuteronomy 28 says this. It says this is one of the curses of sin, that you will build a house, but you won't live in it. You'll plant a vineyard, but you will not even begin to enjoy its fruit. We work and we work and we work and we pass it on. It gets squandered. We don't even get to enjoy it. We, we are, we're kept up at night, you know, just unable to kind of let go of, of the work. And the, the teacher just goes, look, this is, too, this is a chasing after the wind. This is vaporous. Just look at all of the areas that he talks about. Just to go through it again, he talks about laughter, alcohol, success, and legacy, and, and riches, and, and, and music, and, and sex, and wisdom, and education, and, and work, and, and all of this stuff. Just tracks it all the way through. And, and maybe you would go, well, okay, but... But he doesn't talk about relationships, right? So maybe that's where meaning is to be found. Maybe with friends and with family and that kind of thing. But I think, I think the teacher would have fit those things into this category as well. I mean, think about friends. I've had some great friends in my life, but they oftentimes come and go. The three guys who stood beside me at my wedding 11 years ago, I'm not in contact with, with any of them. It's not because of a falling out. It's just because of the distance of geography and time and, and life circumstances. I think about kids. I mean, I love my kids so much. I love being a dad. But I, I can see how the teacher would fit that in as well. He'd go, look, you spend decades investing in your kids, investing in their education, teaching them everything you know, cleaning up after their filth, feeding them. You do everything for them. And then one day, hopefully in their 20s and not in their 30s, at some, day, at some point, they're going to they're leave home and they're never going to come back and live again. So what was the point? I go, look, it's just a toiling, it's a laboring. Nothing is gained under the sun. You could see that, right? Do you agree? Like you could see him saying that. This guy's kind of grumpy. You could see him saying that about child raising too. Like at every point, he just goes, look, these things, it's not that none of these things aren't good. That's not his point. These things are good in their proper context. But in his wisdom, the teacher is zooming out 
And he's kind of looking at life from this big picture perspective. And he's saying that all of these things, every, every pursuit, every aspect of life, if you try to base your life on that, if that is, if that is your meaning and your purpose, it all falls short. It just does not fill the void. It cannot serve as a foundation for your life. And some of you, you know this. You have felt this. You have thought this. Some of you are here today because you're asking these questions. Some of you are here today because, because over the last two years of the pandemic, you realize that all that has been on offer to us in our culture, in terms of identity and, and purpose and meaning, it just doesn't do the trick, right? And that's why you're, you're searching, you're looking for something that's bigger than that because you have experienced the same thing that the teacher of Ecclesiastes did. Now, where does he conclude? What, what does he think uh, is, a, is a place to find meaning? Well, verse 24, I, I'm going to say this is, a, this is a bit underwhelming and I'll explain why in a second. He says, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too I see is from the hand of God for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? He kind of goes, look, in the end, you take what you have in life. Take the food, you take the drink, you enjoy it, you move on. It's nothing more. It's just, just, just take what's given to you and for what, it, for what it's worth. And there's something there probably, right? In terms of the wisdom of contentedness with what we have in life. But I do think that the Bible gives us more than this in the big picture I believe the Holy Spirit inspired the teacher of Ecclesiastes to write these words. But I also believe that his vision was somewhat limited, both because he was pre-Jesus, so he couldn't see the full picture, but also because I think in some ways he chose to limit his vision. He talks about, one of, one, of the, one of the common phrases he uses is under the sun. He talks about how all of this was, was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Under the sun is a word he, or a phrase he uses over and over again. And what this means is life in the world as we find it without any reference to heaven without much reference to a transcendent God. He is describing life in the world in the wake of Genesis 3. Ever since sin entered the world, ever since, since, ever since sin entered creation and warped relationships between people and God, between people and creation, between people and, and other people, this has been the state of affairs. The world is in bondage to sin and to death. This is life under the sun. Nothing ever seems to change or move or, or anything. It's just this, this bondage to sin and to death. That's life in the world as we know it. But the Bible tells us that this is not always going to be the case. In 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1, Paul says that this world in its present form, referring to the world under the sun, the world of brokenness and sin is passing away. 1 John says something similar. He says everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. The Bible tells us, look, this world is passing away. It has a shelf life. It has an expiry date. It will not always be this way. 
And the scriptures tell us that another world is going to take its place, is going to replace this present world under the sun. So Isaiah 65, God speaks to the prophet Isaiah and says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain. That curse of sin, where your toil and your labor produces nothing, Isaiah says a time is coming when that's going to change. That's going to be different. Your work is not going to be in vain. God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth where you enjoy the fruit of your labor. Uh, Revelation 21, God says, I am making all things new. And then Revelation 22, uh, one of the descriptions of the new heavens and the, and the new earth, God says that the curse will be removed, that there will no longer be any curse in the new heavens and the new earth. So this is the promise, that, that though life in the world as we find it now is in bondage to sin and decay, that a time is coming when God will create a new heavens and a new earth where all of that will be reversed, where the curse will be undone, where that bondage will be broken. And the scriptures go even one step further. And they say that in fact... That future reality, that promise of what God will do has broken into the present. And so uh, Jesus, in his teaching, Mark's summary of his teaching in, in, uh, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God. This, 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 this reality of God's reign where everything is as he wants it to be. That kingdom that breaks through the brokenness, breaks the bondage, has come. It is here. But repent and believe the good news about the kingdom of God. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. That the old has gone, the new has come. And so it's not just something we look forward to in the future, but it's something that we now taste and glimpse in the present. And it has come about in Jesus. It has come about through his death and his resurrection. So in the death of Jesus, he goes to the cross and he endures faithfully to the very end. For the first time, there's a human being who has broken the power of sin. That curse has been broken by Jesus. And in his resurrection, Jesus overcomes the power of death. For the first time, a human being has conquered death, has broken through it, has broken the curse of death. And this victory that Jesus has won is ours by faith in him. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15 that because of the resurrection, death has lost its sting. It's lost its victory. And he says, thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we now have victory over this world under the sun. We live by a hope that the author of Ecclesiastes did not have. We live as children of the resurrection. 
We live by the power of the Holy Spirit poured out on his people as a down deposit of what will one day be true of all who trust in Jesus. That we will be raised with him in a new body, in a new creation, where there will be no more death or mourning or pain. We live by his victory, being renewed, being restored, being healed, being pointed to eternity. Isn't that good news? And this then is our task. This is our task. Colossians 2, Paul says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Sorry, that's 1 Corinthians 15. Colossians 3 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Set your hearts on things above because earthly things will fade away. They will pass away. Jesus says, don't be anxious about those things. He says, don't worry about what you're going to eat or wear or, or, or any of those kinds of things, what you're going to drink because, because God knows that you need those, needs those things. You need those things. Instead, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of those things will be added to you as well. It doesn't mean that we don't still buy properties and have families and go on vacations and have fun and do all of those things, but we no longer base our meaning, our purpose, our identity in any of those earthly things because they're passing away, they're fading away. Instead, we set our minds on what is eternal. We live for the kingdom of God. We, we live, we devote ourselves to the things that will last for eternity, like loving the Lord and loving others. That's what we're going to be doing in eternity. That's what we devote ourselves to now. And when we do that, this is God's promise. 1 Corinthians 15, this is how Paul ends his magnum opus on the resurrection. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. C.S. Lewis had this great quote. He said, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. So many people in our world, and maybe, maybe you're here too, are devoting their lives to making mud pies. This is what they're devoting their lives to, things that are going to fade away. They're temporary, they're fleeting, they're a vapor. Stop it. Stop devoting your life to the relentless pursuit of making more meaningless mud pies. Devote yourself to the kingdom of God. Seek the kingdom. Commit to, to living a life that honors the Lord, a life that is unshakable because it is based on unshakable foundations. This world in its present form is passing away. A new world is coming to take its place. And even now, through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, through the church, it is breaking in. Devote yourself to that. So Lord, 
Oh, Lord, we confess, even those of us, Lord, who have been following you for a long time, confess, Lord, that we have lived oftentimes for meaningless things. We have, we have put so much of our identity and meaning and purpose in things that are just fleeting and, and vaporous, like the teacher in Ecclesiastes. God, I thank you for this word. I thank you, Lord, that, that you speak to us and, and call us, Lord, away from a life that is just about making mud pies in slums. And, and you call us, Lord, to, to enjoy you, to, to live with you filled by your spirit, to live a life filled with eternal meaning and purpose. God, I pray today for people who are here and know that they have, they have, not, they have not left that, that, that old life behind. They are still living very much, Lord, for this present world that is, that is passing away. And I pray that you would speak to them today. I pray that you would show them, Lord, the, the emptiness, the meaninglessness of that kind of life. And I pray, Lord, that you would show them how good and beautiful you are, how good and beautiful the kingdom of God is, how good and beautiful the new heavens and the new, new earth is. Lord, I pray that you would speak to their hearts today. Lord, lead us in repentance, that we would be a church that has our hearts, our eyes, just totally set on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us at Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're simply just wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know a little bit more about our church, you can do that through accessing our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to different types of content. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe that he is the hope of this world and wants to give you your hope as well. We believe that the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.